Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia or dystopia in each episode. This is the second part of a conversation I had with Sarah Lohman on Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, The Dispossessed. I'm guessing most of you listening to this will have heard the first part, so that's fine. But if this happens to be the first episode of Utopian Horizons that you've come to for whatever reason, then you'll probably want to listen to the first part of this conversation first as we're going to be kind of jumping in halfway through. So yeah, it'll make more sense if you go and listen to the, um, to the first part of this conversation first. This is the first podcast that I've recorded since uh, sort of launching the new Patreon. It's very nice to see that some people have signed up for it to get access to the uh, to the bonus episodes I'm doing. The first episode I've released on there is on Utopia and music, uh, featuring a number of people on there. Um, those of you that listened to it seem to have really liked it, so that's nice to hear. Uh, I hope some more of you will um, think about signing up on the on the Patreon and, and checking that out. And uh, yeah, to those of you that signed, have signed up, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. And I'll try and uh, send you the, the little Utopian Horizons badges that I owe you um, as, soon as, I, as soon as I can. There's another bonus episode available now as well, or now or in the uh, very near future. Um, obviously, I'm recording this episode a few days before I release it, but the bonus episode is already ready to go. So I'll, I'll release it at the, at the same time as this one. I is the is the plan so that's on a video game called not tonight which is kind of a, a papers please ish uh game about bouncing and very much a game about brexit so i kind of use it to talk a bit about brexit and, uh, and the politics around that so yeah um if you're interested in hearing that then go to patreon.com slash utopian horizons and you can sign up and get access to that as well as the the episode i've already done on utopia and music and an episode next week uh, on the first episode of Cowboy Bebop as well. That's coming. Uh, that's already recorded, and yeah, I'll release that in a, in a week or so. I'm not going to try and push the push the Patreon again too hard uh, this time around because I'm guessing pretty much all of you listen to uh, as this is part two of a two part. I'm guessing there's probably not uh, any or many new people here, but um, just to say again. As I mentioned before, I'm trying to keep up. Um, this next few weeks, weeks is going to be a more, a bit more of a, a reg- regular schedule, hopefully. In terms of, um, there's pretty much two episodes a week at the moment. In in terms of the, these normal episodes and the bonus ones, that's kind of to give people a bit of a, a taste of how I'd like the podcast to be. If I could uh, get some more support on Patreon, sort of justify putting more time into the podcast, um, because yeah making these episodes does take a lot of time and effort so yeah that's all i'll say about that thank you for those of you supporting me and and um, for those who haven't got the cash or don't want to support me if you could think about giving me a review on itunes that would be very much appreciated as well but yeah uh so yeah nice to see that some of you have signed up and nice to see that you're enjoying it yeah i think that's all i really need to say here uh now we're going to jump back into the second part of my conversation with sarah lohman on the dispossessed okay so um one of the one of the things i wanted to talk to you about that i think is really interesting important aspect in, in this book uh obviously it, the 
the subheading is an ambiguous utopia and there's a lot of imperfection in it you can tell already like the conversation we had at the, the beginning of the podcast we kept saying oh it's meant to be like that in principle or like sometimes it goes like this but some like you can already tell that like sometimes not everything goes it's supposed to so there is clearly imperfection here so i want to talk about that and like like the value of that um the the first thing obviously is we, we talked a bit about this is anaris is a very harsh world like when you think of utopia like the first thing you would probably think of is like you know some perfect world where everything's green and lush and we've had there's loads of abundance we can have everything we want blah 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 this is a society where like survival is really difficult it's like basically a, a desert world survival is a, a constant struggle they don't have there's no animals say for like i think maybe like insects and stuff there is as there's a part to the novel where there's a drought so there's like a really bad period of years where the, you know it's a question of whether the society is even going to survive um so yeah i just wondered if you had any thoughts about why ursula Gwynn has made this utopia like a place of scarcity and you know difficulty where it's a real struggle to survive yeah so um i think that actually um the fact that it is such a yeah so it's such a just a difficult environment is is really um useful to the exploration of utopia here because um if you already kind of like assume the the worst possible um conditions then um uh like if, if you have a, a social system that doesn't um that doesn't function unless the conditions are perfect then um then that's you can immediately throw that out right you need something that's actually adaptable to all sorts of different conditions and if you have the worst possible ones to begin with then that's ideal for testing whatever system you have right um so um so i think that the fact that this environment is so incredibly hostile is actually a really great way to show how it could still survive and thrive and it does to a certain extent and um and Shevik also says at one point um it's the only thing that that can work um in this particular environment he says what is idealistic about social cooperation mutual aid when it is the only means of staying alive and another point he also says it is our suffering that brings us together it is not love so like the the very harshness of the environment is is what um makes this this system of um you know like different allocated work postings etc um function because everyone's pitching in right Every, everyone's doing exactly what needs doing there's no kind of selfish behavior standing in the way of the community on the other hand um you could look at something like uh like Ian Banks's culture that's very much post scarcity so it's it's very much at the at the other end in terms of um, the, the preconditions for the society and that they have absolutely everything that they want and they do also have this kind of liberal anarchy. and um, But that functions very differently. So they're, they're so privileged in terms of the technology that they have and you know, no one has to do any menial labor, etc., that they've actually decided on a very different system where a lot of the work is done by um, like the... the uh, physical work and also mental work by AIs that are the, the non-human minds. And uh, so that just, that functions very differently, but it's also an anarchy. So um, it's also an anarchist system. So it's interesting to kind of compare the two. Uh, but yeah, but in this case, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's tested by the harshness of the environment. And I think that's actually quite nice. Mm -hmm. uh, just like the most basic bare conditions. I think something you said earlier about, you know, you, you mentioned the thing with the blanket and how like it put, it took that way and put the focus on the relationship. Like, and mm. I think that's also something you get out of this 
kind of world as as well is like the the focus is on how people relate to each other and like what yeah. the structures of the social relations not about like what you have so like creating that but literally being in like in a desert like gets rid of everything and lets you focus on like how exactly. the, stru- the structure works if you know what I mean yeah yeah absolutely and and also what I what I like about utopian literature in general is that um is that you can think of these novels as uh, thought experiments. And the more basic a, um, a setup you have, I think the easier it is to actually see the effect of the, the factors that you're changing within the society. So if you start with something that's just incredibly basic, don't assume that anyone already has any kind of like elevated starting point to to go by then you can you can look in you know in the most bare bones way at how the society develops and what actually happens and so i think that's actually that's really quite nice and i haven't seen it um you know in quite as much starkness in in other novels um and then also you can focus on you know other things that can go wrong that come more from you know the people themselves right so of course there's the bureaucracy that kind of poisons uh, the anarchist system on anaris and and also like human fear of, of failure and otherness and difference. But those aren't, I wouldn't say that those are meant to kind of show that this kind of society doesn't work. I think those are, again, just like means of testing it, right? Mm-hmm. They're just like, well, okay, well, what can happen? Let's, let's just kind of throw different things at the system, different, different situations where things can go wrong um for reasons that don't really have anything to do with the utopia itself and uh, and we'll just see how it copes hmm. yeah um i wanted to just sort of give a, give a few examples to, to people if we hinted a lot at stuff not like working out so yeah so just to give a few examples to people so there's stuff like when Shevak first goes to the uh, university on on Anares, uh, he notices that they're having dessert every night, and he says like, "Oh, that's rare." Everyone else, and he he's been told everyone was equal, and he's like, "Oh, well, this calls you know it calls things." I mean, it's a small thing, but it calls things into yeah. question for him. I mean, if worth saying about that, like, so this this hints that things might not always be uh, as they should be, but some people have got extra dessert right it's not like it shows you that there's like an imperfection there but it doesn't like mean it's not it's not like the exploitation of you have extreme like billionaires yeah. and like people like some people have extra dessert so it, it's yeah. kind of acknowledging that um you also have stuff like his it's a guy called Sabal who's he's a, a professor at university and he he realizes that basically he's being he hasn't done any original work it's just that he can read um iotic the language of rs and he's basically translated stuff without acknowledging it and he kind of he puts his name on um shivak's paper to get credit for work he hasn't done basically so again we have this idea that there's not hierarchical power but we see several exercise it oh another we, we see even though we, we talked about it's being a feminist society but there's a there's a scene where um it's a guy who says to, says to him oh um women want to own you like they want property men mm. want freedom women can't be true Odonians like forgetting the fact that Odo was a, a woman of course so mm. it's show- again that that shows you that like people can still be sexist but yeah but again it's yeah. worth knowing like sexism's not there like structurally so yeah yeah I think there's something quite huge so I think she's 
in this book you're constantly seeing these things where the we've talked about this overall theme of individual versus like collective and that there's a whole like it constantly returns to that like um one of his friends called bid up beat up bed up i don't know he yeah. talks about how like public opinions basically like a power structure like we've talked about how people will shame you perhaps if you don't you can you can do what you want but you may face you may like be seen as an outcast or shamed and he talks about that being like a, a controlling thing so we're constantly being exposed to i to ways in which the the society might not be as perfect as it should be or, or as a principle but i think what's really important of it is it, it's never like it's never like a, a gotcha moment like a yeah. like a like an anti-utopian thing like, ah you see like utopia is always going to be corrupted because people are mm. going to do it, it it's like it still really is a utopia in some sense but it yeah. has this nuance where it uh it wants to see these flaws without without that calling into question like the fundamental principle of utopia i guess you'd yeah say. no absolutely yeah so i think again like i think that some of these things are really you can see them as kind of strengthening the overall idea of that particular utopia because um they're just like you know throwing throwing a wrench in the works and just seeing how the system copes right but so for example i think a, a really um important way that that's exemplified is is again environmental so for example the um, these kind of ethical conundrums that um, people sometimes find themselves in that are that are caused by there just not being enough for everyone and just um, and like having to make decisions between like who gets extra rations and things. So, for example, I think the dessert thing is kind of um, like either that's someone's selfishness or it's connected to this ration idea. And they definitely have that during the drought that, um, you know, like at one point, Shevik has the, the job of kind of allocating uh, work to people and he's given he's given full rations and then other people are given half and then people who are already ill get a quarter ration. And that's very clearly, I think, kind of intended to uh, to kind of um, control uh, the population like towards the the stronger ones surviving. So if someone's already ill, then if they're only getting a quarter ration, then they might well die. And that's kind of intended by the system. But the thing is that again, it's not it's not a personal thing. Like this is something. It sounds incredibly harsh, but this is a system that that everyone kind of decided on to begin with, and they're all just trying to find the most fair way of running their society, even in emergency situations. So of course, ideally, everyone will always get the same. Uh, amount of food to eat, etc., and the same opportunities, but sometimes you just have to make these decisions because um, uh, these these very harsh kind of moral decisions because the society has to survive in whatever way. And or there's another uh, story where there's um, a train driver who's bringing food to another community, and then um, his train gets stopped by some people on the tracks who haven't had enough food and and he has to decide basically where the food goes and he ends up like backing his train into the crowd and like killing some people and and feels absolutely terrible about it but but again it was basically him deciding that you know the system was right in deciding that the food in the train was meant to go to this other particular community but again it's just it's a you know that's that's when you end up with these like really um, extreme philosophical thought experiments like the trolley problem and then you have to end up deciding you know whether utilitarianism is the correct way to go or whatever and but these are decisions that these people are regularly making for themselves within that community so I think what's actually quite interesting there is within this basic anarchist system because the only thing that they're all 
um, committed to is the principle of mutual aid, I think they have the freedom actually to make those individual decisions about how best to reach that aim, right? So the train driver is a part of that decision-making process. Um, Shevik is part of that decision-making process in that he decides to give up the post where um, the rations are unfair in his mind. But of course, it's, you know, someone else will take up that post. But still, like, it's um, to a certain extent, these people are are invited to have input into what what is the best way of doing things and of course like the way that they run these communities is through communal decision making so anyone like if there's something that's really not working out in the system like anyone is welcome to complain about that and and maybe get it changed so um so again like there are some very harsh tests to how the system functions but it's not that in itself isn't a flaw. In fact, it's just it's something that ultimately, you know, ideally would show that the the basic system already is um, is a good one that just needs tweaking. And and like we were saying earlier, that also needs to you know adapt to change and like be constantly growing and and not growing, but constantly evolving and and changing in accordance with the the change that's already happening within it. I think that those imperfections are. I mean, we talk. You talked about a lot of those like difficult decisions and moments where the systems tested and. Uh, Again, I'll say like it's again like provocative, which I think is one of the things that fundamentally makes it a utopian novel. In that it, it wants you to take a critical perspective, it wants you to like be a utopian and think about yeah. the problems inherent in these different systems, or potential problems, whether this thing's better than that thing, how you could how you could adapt it, how you can change it. Like it wants you to take that position. Um, I think the other yeah. the other is something that so, so something that I talked about. Uh, I think in my second episode I did, uh, I had Peter Fraze on to talk about his book, um, Life After Capitalism. And he talked about the, uh, the problem of utopias being like boring, <laughs> like in terms of the old yeah. utopias, um, the traditional utopias where everything is like perfect and everything. And mm -hmm. there's, that presents a problem narratively in that it can, you know, it's, there's no conflict, there's no, there's no story, there's nothing interesting. And so that's obviously a benefit for this book that it has a narrative because there are conflicts, there are um there are problems that need to be overcome. Um I think it if we want to imagine an RS as something that can be feasible in some way, it feels more realistic and it's something that we can easily imagine when it is complicated and messy and th there are problems that people have. But also the other this idea, um Peter said to get again in that episode, like the idea that in utopia uh, conflict will disappear is is fundamentally problematic and we need to think about if for example you take away money as like the organizing force that will remove that kind of conflict but then you have other yeah. kinds of conflict that it, it will find out and you know envy will still exist it will just be structured in a different way and yeah again that's something i think is really uh effective about this book or what makes it effective as a utopian novel is that it's these imperfections um they again it's like you said they they are testing these problem cases they are still showing conflict there right how do these conflicts resolve themselves that's something that we need to think about yeah yeah absolutely and so so like you were saying like um it's both kind of on the level of of the narrative that um you know that the this utopia deals with different problems and kind of overcomes them and i was i was talking about environmental problems but then of course there's also you know the um uh like individual human failings like you were you were talking about sabu and then also how the whole kind of um pdc um becomes kind of rigid in in how it works and um and then that in itself kind of leads to 
like just less human freedom for for individuals and um, so all of that does contribute to the narrative being more interesting because you're seeing the utopia dealing with different problems but then also I think this basic so the the whole point of my thesis at the moment basically is that I'm trying to say look there are utopias out there that aren't boring and the reason they're not boring is because um, they, uh, because they're looking at how utopia can be sustainable and dynamic. And then I'm using complexity to try and explain that. So I'm basically saying because a complex system is inherently dynamic and some of these, uh, critical utopias can be read as complex systems, that in itself makes them super interesting. And of course, the way that that manifests then in the narrative is that they'll have, for example, like, you know, time travel or like in, um, in, in the case of the dispossessed, there's also, you know, there are all these 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 different uh, chapters that alternate between being set on Eurus and Anaris and um, and that in themselves kind of like with kind of going backwards and forwards in time between the different chapters. They also kind of uh, demonstrate the the cyclical nature of time alongside the linearity that uh, Shevik is trying to demonstrate in his general temporal principle. And then also, you know, at, at the very end, like the penultimate chapter is right before he goes to is set right before he goes to Eurus. And the very last chapter is right before he arrives back at um, at Anaris. So there's this kind of sense of like, um, like constantly being like leaving and arriving and never, never being really settled. And also the fact that the, um, the ending itself is open. Like we don't actually know what's going to happen. And, um, so Le Guin herself actually said in her foreword is quite possible at the end that both Shevik and Ketho will be killed on arrival by an angry mob. It's only too likely that Shevik's specific plans and hopes for his people will come to little or nothing. And that would not surprise Ketho. But yeah, so there's definitely the sense of, um, yeah, we can work towards something better, but not only will we always have um, difficulties to combat, um, and, and we also won't know whether we're ultimately su successful, but in fact, the only way that we could ever begin to be successful is by incorporating, you know, unexpected developments and change and organic, uh, organic growth. And so, yeah, so I, I basically think the dispossessed and uh, the other critical utopias largely are a new kind of utopianism in that they uh, they head on kind of deal with the fact that any uh, any utopia or any utopian impulse must always have dynamism and growth and um, and complexity at its core. And, and that is then not boring. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about was the way the book uses perspective. Um, that's quite an important part of it. I mean, as we said, we've got two worlds. So we have, they obviously contrast, they're obviously different perspectives. We have the perspective of Shivak on an alien world. We have the, the perspective of how the aliens react to him. We have our perspective on the two different worlds. Um, yeah, and it's quite interesting the way that works together. Um, one of the things that I think the novel's quite effective at in terms of using um using this perspective is is thinking about how it highlights the way that ideology works or how what you might describe as like a anti-utopian impulse in terms of thinking of, of certain things as like natural and just the way things are one way this is so one way this manifests you have the conversations that he has with the doctor and that you know they they're talking he's, this is his first encounter with someone from another world and they're asking each other questions and he talks about answer, asking a question and the doctor ends up like floundering and he says each took for granted certain relationships that the other could not see. 
I think mm-hmm. that's um that's basically talking about you know the power of like estrangement in science fiction, yeah. like this idea yeah. that you. I've talked about estrangement on the podcast before, which I'll try and explain again. <laughs> um, you know, basically, this idea of you 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 come into the contact with this other world that um you might struggle to understand and that has the effect of bringing you into a, a new perspective that can denaturalize your assumptions yeah um and i feel like that's like built into this book like in obviously that i think that's how science fiction works in general but that idea is there that's something that's inherent to what we're seeing in shivak's perspective if you see what i mean this idea he's constantly we're constantly seeing people having predispositions or assumptions that are being knocked down in, su- in surprising ways yeah absolutely yeah so um so you know darko suvin basically says that um that science fiction is uh is necessarily founded on this interaction between the um as between estrangement and cognition so so you know taking something we know and making it strange and using the the novum this kind of this new element that um kind of forces us to see our reality in a different way and so i think that shevik um actually is again just this this personification of estrangement here and that he he literally leaves his own planet and then like looks back at it and thinks about it from a different point of view having engaged with Uras and and vice versa so he's always thinking he's always kind of taking a step back and and changing his own perspective in order to um understand his his reality better um oh and also actually fun fact did you know that um the uh, that Darko Suvin was um, the first reader of the Dispossessed. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, he. <laughs> uh, I just I read in the um, in Le Guin's introduction to the novel. She said uh, thank you to to Darko Suvin, um, my book's first reader and first critic, and also that he was very useful as a Marxist. Apparently. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that yeah. Explain that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so anyway, so this this idea that. Uh, Shevik always already sees himself as an outsider in this world that is completely communal. So in a way, he's actually a really good guide for us to understand this utopia to begin with. But then also, he literally leaves the utopia and um, and, and looks back and, and has this this vantage point that really makes him um, not only a good utopian guide, although of course he you know he subverts the the tradition of the utopian guide that takes us to utopia and said he he leaves a flawed utopia to go to a place that some people see as utopian and we then end up seeing as dystopian. So he's already completely upending um, that narrative convention, Hmm. but still he's just in this really great position of of introducing us to, to both of these worlds and then also even, you know, other worlds. Uh, Yeah. And, and again, like this, um, I think this, this openness of the ending is, um, is another way of kind of keeping, uh, of, of not, delving too much into the familiar like we're 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 used to or we enjoy having um you know endings that kind of tie everything up nicely and apparently that's initially what Le Guin had for this book but then Darko Suvin told her not to do that (laughs) (laughs) he said you have to you have to keep it open and I think that's 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 really good because you um because that in itself is estranging like we we don't have access to the ending we don't know what reality is like at the end of the story but then all we're left with is the process all we're left with is our own interpretation our own estranged view of our reality and the possibilities inherent in that and and i think that's that's actually a really exciting place to be even though it's kind of frustrating and again it just underlies the the fundamental necessity of of an openness of a system that is to be sustainable 
Okay, so just um, just one final thing. There's a, a nice um, quote in there from uh, when when he meets one of the working class revolutionaries on on Uras and the capitalist society, and he says to him, "Do you know what your society has meant here to us? They can never say it's a mirage, an idea, this dream." So I just wanted to ask you what you think the the value of this book and the utopia of Anaras is for us. Yeah, so I think. Um... Uh, so like, like I was saying before that I think that utopias, literary utopia, uh, sorry, utopias in particular are really um, nice kind of vessels for thought experiments because you can, you know, change these different factors and then, and then see what happens. And it's a, a nice kind of uh, meta thing that Le Guin is doing here and that she, she has that, that, that estranged utopian effect, not only between the reader and the utopia, but like within, uh, within the universe in which this utopia is set. So she already has... Uh, again, the, the estranged perspective, not only of, of Shevik uh, regarding these different worlds, but also of the people who have been observing Anaris. Uh, so, so in a way, the people on Uras are stand-ins for for the reader in um, in comparing this utopian society to their own and, and thinking about how their lives would be different if they lived in um, in a world like that. And um, but also just like having this intimate engagement with these ideas by seeing them played out in a way. So what, what they benefit from is this immediate engagement with Shevik's actual physical presence in their midst and, and then literally, you know, being led to revolution by, uh, by Shevik. But again, ultimately we, we don't know what's going to happen there because that society again on Euros is even though it's similar to our own, it's not the same. And, you know, it might not even change at all. And like we, there's this impulse there, but we don't know what it leads to. And, you know, one of the, the fundamental things that Shevik learns in the end is you can't, you can't bring Anaris or the idea of utopia to other people. You have to let them come to you. Right. Mm. And um, so I think that's a really important point there again coming back to the idea of complexity that you can't force anything you can't force um a social development you just need to make sure that the material is out there you need to have communication set in place right it, it all comes down to kind of having these these open systems that encourage discourse and 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 learning and just communication in general and i think the ansible also stands in for this idea of communication and once you have that and and this is one of the I think this book is so important in um, in all of you know Le Guin's kind of Heinish material set in this universe that it's actually it's the point at which this the uh, the universe opens up at which these different planets are really able to engage with each other because they start having this literal way of communicating. But even if you through the Ansible, but even if you didn't have something like the Ansible, I think what it comes down to metaphorically is just this idea of of engaging with one another, of actually listening to one another. And I think that's basically what what literary utopias do, is they don't force their views on anyone. They just kind of throw some ideas out there and just, you know, hope for the best and just kind of see how people will react. And and I think that's that's a really interesting way of um, getting people to engage with their own society by just being like, hey, what if we just imagined that things were quite different but still fundamentally connected to our own world, just different in very specific ways that maybe we could also um, imagine um, adopting in our own society, but maybe not, you know, depending on what works at any given point in time. And um, yeah, so actually there's been some criticism of the dispossessed for actually um, for being too perfect or for, for being too optimistic. And uh, so John, um, uh, oh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Fikidi? <laughs> Fikid? 
So he says that uh, total harmony and total transparency are the fictions behind Shevik's illusion that a healthy society would and could coordinate all its individual peculiarities, and that Le Guin retains the rationalist dream of unitary cohesion. Um, but I think actually, if you if you see Anaris as something that is ultimately only going to be successful if it incorporates, you know, the kind of change and complementarity that that Shevik brings to it, then it's that it's a living, changing organism, a complex organism. And that can never be um, you can never really see it in terms of like everyone being perfectly coordinated or this kind of unitary cohesion, because both of those imply something that is static, whereas if it's meant to be successful, it's never going to be static. It's always going to be shifting. It's always going to be improving. So, so yeah. So I think just this the the very kind of back and forthness of the novel, the the kind of the the dialectic that underlies it. I think that in itself just like really nicely illustrates this utopian impulse that is always dynamic and that's always kind of um, adjusting if it is to be sustainable. And uh, but just is very open to this idea of experimentation and. Um, and just, you know, throwing something out there for us to think about and just, you know, playing around with different ways of doing things. And so I think as a utopia, that is this kind of thought experiment that makes us see our own reality in a different way. I think the dispossessed is actually really interesting and not at all, uh, you know, closed off and boring or anything that you would expect from a traditional utopia. So, uh, so I think absolutely that is, that is the value that it has and should have for us as this utopian impulse and just makes us think about just the very nature of utopia and and the processes and systems that uh that could lead to it or are inherent with within uh within a better world in terms of this openness especially in terms of communication complexity and uh just a holistic dynamic worldview so and i think yeah that that's what makes it really interesting and absolutely worth reading and i really enjoyed myself <laughs> yeah it's great it's um in terms of like explicit utopian novels, I think it, it it's one of my favourites, if not my favourite. So yeah, I definitely mm. recommend people reading it. Um, yes. Just so yeah, a nice place to end. So um, thank you very much for joining me, Sarah. Oh, thank you. Is there anything you anything else you want to mention? Is there anything you want to plug or anything? I don't know. Um, can I just uh just yeah just plug one thing, and that is this is not at all like an event or anything like that or a thing, but um. Just to just to reiterate again, I think that um, the dispossessed is a really good example of this kind of this batch of of utopias, these critical utopias that are also, I think, essentially egalitarian um, and feminist uh, from the you know uh, late sixties, early seventies, um, that really kind of demonstrate to us like what a utopia can be, and that I think can also really change how we think about utopian literature in general, and also just just totally kind of change the meaning of the word utopia. So it's, it's not not something that's either completely idealistic or so idealistic that it's not even worth thinking about, but actually is something that can be engaged with in different ways. And that can be just like, that's much more about the process and the impulse um, than about having a, like a, a very specific um, uh, static system. And uh, yeah, so basically I just want to um, <laughs> plug these critical utopias. So the dispossessed and also um, Marge Pierce's Woman on the Edge of Time and Joanna Russ is the Female Man as just like 
just completely new ways of, of, of doing utopia that can even even now, many decades later, that we can really learn from and in terms of thinking about how a society can can become better and, and function sustainably. And um, I think especially right now where so many things are going horribly wrong, I think that's really important to keep in mind. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from those novels and they shouldn't be ignored just because they've been branded feminist utopias because actually they're super interesting and useful and uh, worth reading. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. So that's the end of this two-part episode on The Dispossessed. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, again, please consider checking out patreon.com slash utopian horizons to see what rewards you can get on there and you can get access to some more of this stuff. You can hear the bonus episodes that I'm I'm producing, um, the two that are already there and, and more that will be coming. And you can get a badge as well. So who can resist that? Um, as always, you can get in touch with me if you've got any questions or any feedback or suggestions or anything else on um, utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com, on Twitter at utopianhorizons, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. Uh, something I didn't say at the beginning was thank you to those of you that have given me iTunes reviews. I forgot to mention that when I was asking for them. And yeah, I'd really appreciate it if you could think about giving me a review on iTunes if you've been enjoying this podcast. I will be back in roughly a week with the next episode. It's on the video game Snatcher and Trevor Strunk from the No Cartridge podcast that you might be familiar with uh, is joining me. So yeah, that was um, that was a fun conversation and uh, yeah, I look forward to, to you hearing it. Thanks again. Hope you've enjoyed it. Bye.